We're going to resume with chapter 19 and the crucifixion of Jesus at verse 19. Uh, you have the handouts for this evening. My intent is to finish chapter 20 as well, which will leave chapter 21 for next week. Dernier class or the last class, as they say in Adam's favorite language, French. Well, we'll begin with uh, one of Adam's favorite languages, namely Hebrew, and we'll have him vocalize the titulus. You have the forms of the titulus on the handout in front of you. And the first thing that we'll do, we would take the top line from Adam, as we'll ask him to say how he's going to read it. How are you going to read it? From right to left. From right to left. Because, it's, because it's Hebrew. And uh, actually, this is <clears throat> the form of John 1919 from Frederick Delich's famous Hebrew New Testament. Uh, it's quite a rare item. Uh, I had a copy of it once, and uh, that was the way I was able to extract this uh, Hebrew title. Uh, Dulwich translated the entire New Testament into Hebrew, which is quite an interesting uh, task as well as uh, in, in, interesting exegetically. It gives you some uh, different nuances. <clears throat> well, all right. Adam's going to read the top line, and you read Hebrew from right to left. Very good. And translation? Now, Margaret, can I put you on the spot for the next line? That's all right. You can translate it. Eudiorum. Good. And a translation? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of the Jews. Yes, and what language is that? That is Latin. That is Latin. And now we'll ask our Greek instructor to vocalize the next line. Oh, she disappeared. <laughs> well, then I guess we'll have to have her husband vocalize it. Good. Now, you see I gave it to you in Greek in caps as well as uh, lowercase. But these three languages were affixed to the titulus, and that's a Latin terminus technicus for the title or the inscription on the placard above the head of Jesus on the cross in three languages. He is declared king. In the language of the Jewish world, 
in the Greco-Roman languages of the Gentile world, in the languages of both worlds, Jew and Gentile, Jesus is declared king. This king is the savior of the world. Jew and Gentile both confess him king in the hour of his elevation. Lifted up from the earth, the eschatological king begins to draw all men, Jew and Gentile, men and women and children, begins to draw all men unto himself, as he indicated in chapter 12, verse 32. Beside the titulus of mockery, beside the ironic titulus of ridicule and scorn, stands another titulus on an iron standard planted beside the soldiers at the foot of the cross, S-P-Q-R. S-P-Q-R, the titulus of the Roman Empire, Senatus, Populusque, Romanus, the Senate, and the Roman people. The iron standard of the universal power of this world, now rusted, corroded, reduced to iron powder, to dust like the dust of death, like the dead empire of dust and corrosion which has passed away. Beside the transient titulus, titulus, the titulus which still speaks, it speaks because the king of that kingdom still reigns. From the right hand of glory and everlasting titulus, King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of those out of every tribe and nation and tongue under heaven. Pilate testifies to the truth once more, unwittingly, ironically, Pontius Pilate declares the eschatological king of heaven and earth and all nations. A king, my title is prefixed on high, yet by my subjects and condemned to die. A servile death in servile company was ever grief like mine. George Herbert. The threefold linguistic titulus is but one of the rule of threes in this section. There is a threefold pattern of fulfillment, the law, the prophets, and the writings. All three are summoned by the evangelist to testify that all the Old Testament canon projects the saving death of the Son of God. Verse 36, not a bone of him shall be broken retrospectively capturing the Passover lamb of Exodus 12:46 you may note Psalm 34:20 as well the book of the law incarnates the death of the eschatological lamb anticipating the fulfillment of the law 
in the death of God's Son. Verse 37, they shall look on him whom they pierced. From the book of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. The prophets project the Israel upon whom the Spirit is poured out, the Israel of the end of the age, the eschatological people of God. Behold, the pierced one from whom flows blood and water. John 19:34. Blood and water, the emblem of spirit birth. New birth, rebirth, birth from above. This is he that came by water and blood. Water and blood, First John 5, 6, and the rule of threes returns. There are three that bear witness, the spirit and the water and the blood, 1 John 5, 8, the transition to the age of Christ and the Spirit is marked by blood and water, even as the transition to the era of Moses and the law is marked by water and blood, Exodus 4, 9. The era of the curse, water and blood, the era of the blessing, blood and water. The book of the writings anticipates the eschatological dereliction from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Abandoned, stripped, humiliated, reproached, Despised, the book of the writings projects one, one whose tongue cleaves to his mouth, one pierced hands and feet, one who folds down, incarnates forsakenness, forsakenness once and for all. A rule of threes and the fullness of the canon in John's witness to the passion of Christ, the law and the prophets and the writings, these three bear witness of him. Please note also the threefold mention of the king of the Jews, verse 19 and then twice in verse 21. The three words of Jesus from the cross, Woman, behold your son, behold your mother, verses 26 to 27. I thirst, verse 28. It is finished, verse 30. And the threefold mention of the sour wine, twice in verse 29 and then in verse 30. But it is particularly the biblical theology of the crucifixion to which I direct your attention, to which I direct your heart, to which I direct your identification and participation. The biblical theological 
the redemptive historical, the eschatological significance of the crucifixion begins in the criminal status of the one crucified. The criminal status of Christ is vicarious, substitutionary, representative, corporate, covenantal. He is personally, morally, uncriminal, yet he is legally, judicially regarded as criminal. This is scandalous, it is ignominious, it is contemptible, it is glorious. The criminal status of Christ is also analeptic, that is retrospective, looking back beyond itself to the status of another representative, another corporate covenantal figure. The retrospective analepsis of the vicarious criminal at Calvary reaches all the way back to the protological criminal, the first corporate covenantal representative redemptive historical figure. The criminal status of Christ is retrospective, retrospective of the protological criminal the first transgressor and violator of heaven's law. The protological criminal, the protological Adam, the protological representative is recapitulated in Christ. He assumes the role and status of the primal head of mankind. And in that role, under that status, Jesus is regarded as accursed. It is not merely the curse which attaches to elevation on the cross, a la Deuteronomy 21:23, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. It is the curse hanging upon the fallen created order which hangs upon Christ, which Christ himself assumes vicariously. The protological curse is evident in the trial and crucifixion of Christ. How so, you ask? The crown of thorns. Thorns. The protological curse upon fallen protological Adam. So sits the earth's great curse in Adam's fall upon my head, So I remove it all from the earth unto my brows and bear the thrall was ever grief like mine. The eschatological Adam wears a crown of thorns, transferring to himself the curse brought by the crime of the protological Adam. Prospectively, Adam the first and his thorny curse is recapitulated in Adam the last and his thorny crown. The eschatological recapitulates the protological. The vicarious criminal assumes the curse, identifies with the curse, 
participates in the curse is himself incorporated into the curse. And why? Why must he do this? In order to reverse the curse. If the protological Adam reversed the blessings of Eden with the curse, then the eschatological Adam must reverse the reversal by bearing the curse. Bearing the curse away and bestowing blessing in its place. The eschatological Adam took upon himself the identity of your story, your story under the curse, the thorny curse. He identified with your story in order that you may identify with his story. Your protological Adamic story is reversed once and for all in the crown of thorns upon the head of the eschatological Adam. And in that last Adam, your curse is gone, reversed, taken away. No more curse in Christ. Blessings, blessings to your story now and forevermore. Will you stand afar off? from this curse bearer? Will you stand at a distance afar off with the curse upon your brow? He wears your curse. He wears your curse upon his brow. He does not stand afar off from you. He stands with you. He stands beside you. He stands in your cursed nature and he lifts up your curse upon his head, his sacred head. Jesus does not stand afar off from you. He takes you with your curse to himself. He wraps you and your curse up in himself. He enfolds you and your curse to himself. And he says to you, I am the curse instead of you. He lays your cursed head upon his blessed breast. And he says to you, let it go. Let your curse go to me. I will bear it. I will curse it. I will take it to its opposite, to sweet, precious, exquisite, ecstatic blessing. Will you stand afar off? Or will you stand with his mother and her sister and Mary Magdalene and the beloved disciple? Will you stand near unto Jesus Will you stand at the foot of the cross? Will you stand underneath the one who lifts up the curse from you? Will you stand beneath the one who reverses your malediction 
with benediction. Will you stand under the cross and acknowledge that Jesus' thorn-cursed brow is the beginning of no more curse for you? You will, won't you? There is no other to whom you can go. No other curse bearer. No other thorn-crowned brow. No other Adam to whom you can go. The reverse Adam, the reverse Edenic motif appears here in John 19. In addition to the crown of thorns, there is another protological eschatological tandem. The soldiers therefore took his outer garments and also the tunic worn next to the skin. Verse 23. Jesus is stripped naked. It was part of the shame, the degradation, the humiliation of crucifixion to strip the victim of all dignity, all integrity, to expose the victim to every present eye, all-seeing, all-prying, all-leering, sneering eye. Guiltless Jesus is uncovered to the shame, the guilty shame of naked exposure. Yet this is not a mere Greco-Roman punitive reduction. This is a biblical, theological, a redemptive, historical recapitulation. The protological Adamic nakedness is reprised in the eschatological Adam. If Adam in the garden is stripped of his innocence, reduced to shame and guilt and exposure, then the eschatological Adam must be stripped of his innocence, reduced to shame and guilt and exposure. In order to reverse the shame, the last Adam must be exposed to shame. No fig leaves, no covering, disrobed, uncovered. Adam, Adam could not bear the eye of God's justice exposed to the all-seeing eye of God's justice. Adam could not bear his nakedness, his uncovering, his shame. And so Jesus must. He must conform himself to the nakedness and shame of the humiliation brought in by sin. He must conform himself to it so that he can reverse it. The redemptive historical antithesis is played out in the protological and eschatological nakedness. Another man is reduced to naked humiliation in order that when the shame is over, he may be clothed upon 
he may be clothed upon with glory and righteousness and resurrection. He did this for you. He was stripped naked for you so that you might be clothed with his glory. He was reduced to shame for you so that you might stand without shame in his righteousness robes. He was exposed and humiliated in your place so that your just exposure, your just exposure to God's almighty gaze, your humiliating exposure to God's righteous gaze so that God's gaze might be turned from you even as he turned his gaze away from his naked son, that God's gaze may be turned from you and your guilty nakedness, your criminal shame, that God's gaze may be turned away from you in the Christ of the cross, in order that it may be turned upon you in the Christ of the resurrection. He rises clothed with glory. He is raised up transfigured by the dress of the Spirit. He rises dressed with the righteousness robes of no more shame, no more guilt, no more humiliation. The redemptive historical recapitulation, nakedness in the protological Adam, nakedness in the eschatological Adam, the biblical theological recapitulation is for you, for your participation, for your identification, for your representation and inclusion in this naked Savior so that you may participate, you may be identified with, you may be represented and included in this resurrection-garbed son of heaven. Your naked shame is reversed. In Jesus entering into that reversal in your place, you are being clothed upon in Christ is your entering into the reversal which took place in Him. Do you love the righteousness robes of Christ? Do you love the resurrection righteousness robes of Christ? You are not naked behind that covering. Now the denouement, the denouement remains. Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 30. Yes, Jesus also tastes the protological finale. Death lays its death grip upon him. He is life. Death slays him. Death inexorable. Death pitiless. Death insatiable. Death covers the Son of God, blotting out his life separating his life soul from his body. Death saps 
mortifies, rigidifies him who is deathless, like a shroud wrapping, surrounding, binding, squeezing his life, death winds its tentacles, its mortal tentacles around the cross and its victim. And death presses down. Death suffocates. Death crushes the life force, presses, suffocates, crushes the life from him, and leaves in their place what is in him. Death substitutes himself for life. Death replaces life with himself. Death plays the vicar, your life for my death. And Jesus says, as you wish. Jesus says, it is the hour. The hour for my life to reach its goal. It's finish. It's finale. It is time, O death, for your tentacles, your mortal tentacles to lay hold on me. I am the ultimate vicar. I am the death substitute. I lay down my body and soul at your fatal door, there to allow you to separate them to drive them apart, to sever life with death. O death, your dark horror comes apace. I do not shrink back. O death, your dread shadow hovers over me. I do not shun the overshadowing. O death, your grip holds me fast, nails me fast, nails me to death fastens me, pierces me, mortifies me. Oh, death, you are wrapping me, binding me, blanketing me with your paw, winding, twisting, shrouding me, grave-like, tomb-bound, Lazarus-like. Oh, death, I have bowed my head to what you first did, what you first did to that first man how you seized Adam the first and held him fast in your grip, your deadly grip, how you at last sucked and drained the life from him, even foreshadowed that separation of life when your dread, your death dread, drove him to cover, to cover, to hide from my Father, my life-giving, life-breathing Father, death, You wrapped that first Adam in your tomb-like, shroud-like tentacles and death. You crushed the life out of him so that he died. And now, O death, I, the last Adam, I come to you in your puissance, your seeming omnipotence. Death, I come to you and I say to you in the name of my Father, do your worst. Oh, death, do your deadly worst to me at last, once and for all. Weave your eschatological shroud around me and shout over my corpse, He is finished! 
He is finished. I am victor, shouts death. See, I am victor. There, there he is. Life, dead. Behold the man, dead. At my hand, my protological curse is the eschatological course. Death triumphant. Death almighty. Death all eschatological. No escape. No end but me. Me, me, says death. And death dances. Death dances about the foot of the bloodstained cross. Death dances while the caretakers of death lift the body from the gibbet and wrap the body in the precious spices and carry the body to the sepulchre. Death dances its death jig, its totentas, its dance macabre. Death dances in celebration that the protological death is once and for all. Ever after, never rescinded, That protological death is the eschatological condition. The human reality unremitted, untranscended. The final human condition. Death dances that it, it has the last word for man. And the Stoic says, yes. And the rationalist says, yes. And the nihilist says, yes. And the existentialist says, yes. And the gothic garbed says, yes. And the rock station says, yes. And the cinema says, yes. And the artist's canvas says, yes. And the gulag says, yes. And a million cemeteries say, yes. Death, the eschatological victor. All history unites to affirm death. None escapes him. No, not one. Not even Jesus of Nazareth. But now I die. Now all is finished. My woe, man's wheel. And now I bow my head. Only let others say, when I am dead, never was grief like mine, George Herbert. But this Jesus, this Son of God incarnate, This last Adam. But this Jesus prize open the mortal grasp of death. He halts the inexorable march of death triumphant with life. Life from the dead. Resurrection life. The shroud abandoned. The sepulcher abandoned the embalming spices left behind, the crushing, suffocating tentacles of death shaken off, broken. He that is life, life itself, having taken on the reverse, having taken on death, he that was dead now takes on the reverse by the power of an endless life.
life to death, death to life. And he that surrendered his spirit in dissolution from his body by resurrection now takes back his spirit in union with his body, a body enlivened by the spirit, a spiritual body animated by the Holy Spirit. This resurrected one spirit body is now conformed body-soul to the realm of the Spirit. And that realm is the realm of life eternal, glorified life eternal. The hour of Christ's glory has resulted in His glorification. Here is the supreme irony, Johannine and otherwise. Death came to humiliate the Son of God. Death came to leave in God's eternally begotten, now incarnate Son, what was in death itself. Death came to God's Son with an eschatological word. You are finished! I have finished you! And for three days, death's word, death's lifeless mortal word, for three days, death's word was terminal, permanent, irrevocable. But on the third day, death's eschatological word was reversed by the eschatological resurrection and the life. Oh, death, said Jesus, come to me. Wrap your dread tentacles around me. Strip me. Rack me. Drain me. Pain me. Enshroud me. Entomb me. Do your worst death, your impotent worst. And on the first day of the week, Jesus said, O death, I am omnipotent. I have disentombed me. I have disenshrouded me. I have robed myself in glory clothes. I have united body and soul once more, never to be severed again. I have taken you, O death, to myself. I have taken what is in you, death, to myself. I have taken you, death, and in your place, I have left what is in me. I have left life from the dead instead of you. I am your death, O death, for I am life everlasting. I am heaven's life incarnate. And I tell you, O death, I shall never die. Never death will I die. No tomb for me, O death. No cemetery sarcophagus for me, O death. No ossuary for me, O death. No history of the protological malediction binds me. I am the eschatological benediction. No story of Adamic mortality holds me. My story is the story of a new Adam an Adam with life and immortality and the light of glory. And death, as I have joined body and soul anew by resurrection from the dead, so I join the body souls of those whom I love, those whom I represent, those in covenant with me, those alive from the dead in my resurrection from the dead. I join them to me, and they, like me, shall never die. 
They, like me, will be glorified. They, like me, will possess resurrection life now and forevermore. Death, it is finished. I have finished the reversal. In me, not death, but life. Not protological Adamic curse, but eschatological Adamic blessing. You have not finished me, O death. I have finished you. And now begins the eschaton. Now begins the semi-eschaton. In history, for my sons and daughter, now begins the life of heaven itself. They live now in history with my life. And my life is the life of heaven. My life is eternal life. My life is resurrection life. They live with my life even now. The passion of Christ concludes with the resurrection of Christ. The hour of His humiliation concludes in the hour of His exaltation. The story, John's story, of His making Himself of no reputation is now the story of His glorification, His heavenly glorification. It is into this glory, this scandalous glory, that John's passion narrative draws you and me. It draws us to Jesus who lived that story that you and I might have life in his name. His name, His no reputation name, His humiliated name, the name Jesus, Savior, Son of God, King of Kings. And will this name conform you, press you down into humiliation, into no reputation, into death, death to yourself? Or will you stand? in yourself and glory in yourself so that you may make yourself of some reputation even if it means trampling upon the precious blood of Jesus. 
crisis between, before the reformed community in 2005 is the arrogance of those who want a reputation. It is not, I repeat, it is not the portrait of a crucified Jesus. If he is your master, then you are content with no reputation. That is enough because he is all. If you understand John's passion narrative, you can never, no, never, become a self-promoter. It will not compute. It will not compute. I want to read you from a sermon of the second century. The sermon by a bishop of Asia Minor, the city of Sardis, dated approximately 180, 190 AD. The bishop, unknown to most Christians today, his name was Melito, spelled M-E-L-I-T-O. And it wasn't until 1930 that his paschal homily was discovered in an uncorrupted and complete text. As you listen to these words, I want you to hear the kind of preaching that was heard in the Christian church about 180 A.D. I want you to listen to the words of this sermon, and I want you to think about the kind of preaching in the Church of Jesus Christ of 2005 A.D. Melito's Paschal Homily that is, his sermon on the Passover, beginning at line 95. And thus he was lifted up upon the tree, and an inscription was affixed, identifying the one who had been murdered. Who was he? It is painful to tell, but it is more dreadful not to tell. Therefore, hear and tremble because of him for whom the earth trembled. The one who hung the earth in space is himself hanged. The one who fixed the heavens in place is himself impaled. The one who firmly fixed all things is himself firmly fixed to the tree. The Lord is insulted. God has been murdered the king of Israel has been destroyed by the right hand of Israel. Oh, frightful murder. Oh, unheard of injustice. The Lord is disfigured and he is not deemed worthy of a cloak for his naked body. 
so that he might not be seen exposed. For this reason the stars turned and fled, and the day grew quite dark in order to hide that naked person hanging on the tree, darkening not the body of the Lord, but the eyes of men. Yes, even though the people did not tremble, the earth trembled instead. Although the people were not afraid, the heavens grew frightened. Although the people did not tear their garments, the angel tore theirs. Although the people did not lament, the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice. Why was it like this, O Israel? You did not tremble for the Lord. You did not fear for the Lord. You did not lament for the Lord. Yet you lamented your firstborn. You did not tear your garments at the crucifixion of the Lord. Yet you tore your garments for your own who were murdered. You forsook the Lord. You were not found by Him. You dashed the Lord to the ground. And you were dashed to the ground and lie quite dead. But He arose from the dead and mounted up to the heights of heaven. When the Lord had clothed Himself with humanity and had suffered for the sake of the sufferer and had been bound for the sake of the imprisoned and had been judged for the sake of the condemned and buried for the sake of the one who was buried, He rose up from the dead and cried aloud with this voice, Who is He that contends with Me? Let Him stand in opposition to Me. I set the condemned man free. I give the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed, who is my opponent. I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one, man and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am Christ. Therefore, come all families of men, you who have been befouled with sins and receive forgiveness for your sins. I am your forgiveness. I am the Passover of your salvation. I am the Lamb who was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your Savior. I am your resurrection. I am your King. I am leading you to the heights of heaven. I will show you the Eternal Father. I will raise you up by my right hand. This is the one who made the heaven and the earth and who in the beginning created man and was proclaimed through the law and the prophets who became human via the virgin, who was hanged upon a tree, who was buried in the earth, who was resurrected from the dead, who ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has authority to judge and to save everything, through whom the Father created everything from the beginning of the world to the end of the age. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end. An indescribable beginning and incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King This is Jesus. This is the General. This is the Lord. This is the One who rose up from the dead. This is the One who sits at the right hand of the Father, to whom be glory and power forever. Amen. You can read the whole text on the krux.com website under Melito's Paschal Homily. 180 A.D and that riveting style of pictorial, biblical, theological, redemptive, historical preaching. Don't tell me biblical theology is brand new. Don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. You haven't read the documents. Now, to the answer sheets, before we take the break, 
I gave you the uh, answers to chapter 18 and 19 with the narrative marker, but I'm moving on to the fourth sheet, which begins with a number three, the appearance before the high priest and Simon Peter. So if you'll turn to that page, I'll run down the answers for the blanks under number four. Now, I want you to notice why there are two uh, separate lines and uh, two sequences of verses attached to those separate lines as we move down uh, the page there under number four, uh, John 19, 17 to 42. This is a character analysis of the crucifixion and burial of Christ. It is a character analysis in which you, I am unpacking the characters who appear at the crucifixion in verses 17 through 30 and the characters who appear post-crucifixion, that is, after the crucifixion in verses 31 to 42. So you will notice that there is a break between the two lines uh, at verse 30 and verse 31. So the character under 19 and 22 that appears in the crucifixion narrative is Pilate, and ironically, interestingly, significantly, narrative, character-wise, Pilate reappears in the post-crucifixion narrative in verses 31 and 38. You will notice that John has this symmetrical pattern. Here it is, a character symmetry. Verses 20 and 21 the Jews, they appear in the crucifixion narrative. Verse 31, they appear again in the post-crucifixion narrative. Verses 23 and 25, the soldiers at the crucifixion. Verses 32 and 34, the soldiers after the crucifixion. Verse 25, Jesus' mother, Mary and Mary Magdalene. Verses 38 and 39, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. In other words, the friends or the followers of Jesus in parallel. Verse 26, the beloved disciple. Verse 35, the beloved disciple. And finally, verse 30, although his name appears uh, throughout the narrative, Jesus, and verse 40 and 42, Jesus again, although if you look at the sections, you will find the name Jesus routinely. Now on the next sheet. Suggested outlines for John 19, 17 to 42. These are attempts to describe the narrative character or the literary structure of John 19, 17 to 42. And these are suggestions which have been made by a number of scholars. I am repeating them here so that you may see them. And I'm also repeating them here so that you may reject them. Now, I'll tell you why. As you look at the first one, A, up on the cross, A prime, down from the cross, you will notice that we have a chiasm. And the chiasm moves towards the center to the D element, to the mother of Jesus. Any guesses who produced this one? Yes, the Roman Catholic Church, Roman Catholic scholars have produced this chiastic outline to place Mary at the center of the Passion narrative. Quite interesting, is it not, that Jesus does not become the focus. 
So I reject that one. I have no guilt at all in rejecting that one. I'm quite clearly certain that I will reject that one, even as I think Jesus himself would reject it. Now, the next one is an A, B, C, D, E, A prime, B prime, C prime, D prime, E prime, concentric parallelism. The point here is to attempt to take the elements of narrative and to parallel them, and to parallel them in descending parallel fashion. So request, soldiers, beloved disciple, friends, burial. The problem is at D and D prime. The friends in 1927b are not a strong duplicate of the friends in 1938-40. The reason for that is that they are not a prominent element in the narrative of the cross. And therefore, I am not persuaded by the concentric parallelism, which leaves the next page and my proposal. Now, this is my own humble and miserable proposal. It is based on a double literary or narrative paradigm. That is, it can be seen as a chiasm. If you look from A to E, and in good Protestant fashion, we keep the death of Jesus at the center, and it goes back out to A prime with the elevation or crucifixion of Jesus up on the cross and the delevation, that's a word I've invented incidentally, it's the delevation or the descent of Jesus coming down from the cross. It's alliterative, uh, I like it, uh, but you won't find it in the Oxford Dictionary. <laughs> but it makes the point. All right, up on the cross, down from the cross. So you can look at this uh, last page as a kind of uh, elaborate chiasm going from A, B, C, D to E, and then B prime, C prime, D prime, A. However, the problem is that it's not a strict reverse chiasm. Now, it's not a mirror chiasm because we have B prime, C prime, D prime as a reversal from the E center point. And so I have to say that I cannot maintain that this is a strict chiasm. Well, then what do I maintain? I maintain that it is a concentric parallelism, B, C, D, B prime, C prime, D prime, with a chiastic device, namely a central focal point, E, all bracketed by an inclusio, A and A prime. You get the best of all possible worlds with my proposal. You get an inclusio, you get a concentric parallelism, you get a chiastic focal point. Now, filling in the blanks. Up under A, scene. The Praetorium, 1909, to Golgotha, 1917. So, the elevation or crucifixion of Jesus moves from the Praetorium to Golgotha. Under B, the scene is Golgotha, implicit, to the Praetorium, verse 21, implicit. Because you will note that the characters are moving back and forth from the scene of the crucifixion to the scene of Pontius Pilate's audience. Under C, 
The scene is Golgotha, once again implicit because they are dividing Jesus' garments. Under D, the scene is once again Golgotha, implicit because they are standing at the foot of the cross. Therefore, E, Jesus' death, is at Golgotha, implicit. Now, I say implicit. It's not specifically mentioned in the text, but that's the implicit setting of the scene. B prime. Notice, very interestingly, the scene is Golgotha, implicit, moving to the praetorium, implicit. It is a direct parallel to the scene shift under B above. John has constructed this paradigm with parallel narrative location symmetry. He continues to keep you moving in and out, back and forth, tracking that camera from Jesus to the antagonists. Under C prime, soldiers and Jesus' legs, plus the spear in his side. The scene, of course, is Golgotha implicit, matching up with the soldiers and the location of the scene under scene above. In D prime, friends of Jesus, the scene is implicitly Golgotha again when they take the body of Jesus down from the cross. Now under A prime, Amazingly, once again, notice what John does. The removal or the descent of Jesus down from the cross is from the praetorium implicit to Golgotha implicit. A perfect scene, narrative, match, progression, concentric parallelism, inclusio, bracket, chiastic, focal point. Case closed. Well, until the scholars throw it out, but I haven't published it, so <laughs> I'm safe so far. All right. <clears throat> Take a break, and we will come back and look at John chapter 20. And at the end of the second hour, I will entertain questions or comments.